Okay guys, good morning. It's Saturday, the 22nd of June, the day after the summer solstice. And this is Solder Smoke 153. This is our uh, Four Days in May special edition. And we'll get to the recordings that our, uh, our correspondent at Dayton, Bob Crane, very kindly made for us. I didn't make it out to Dayton. Again, I'm a bad traveler. <laughs> I am um, one of these days, but I did get to the Manassas Hamfest which is considerably closer than Dayton. Not as big, but we had a good time. Elisa and I went out there, and she uh, um, I bravely, again, bravely stepped into the uh, the world of the uh, the ham fest, and we had a good time. Just spent a few hours out there. I was, I was impressed. I thought it was a very nice ham fest with what I thought was a pretty impressive level of participation, a really good uh, tailgate area a lot of interesting rigs for sale not a lot of stuff moving i think there was a lot more looking than buying which i'm sure was disappointing for the guys who were out there in the tailgate area but uh nevertheless saw a lot of interesting pieces of gear lately i've been interested in the r390a receiver that is a really magnificent old tube or, or valve type receiver and i saw two of them on sale at manassas a lot of old boat anchor gear didn't buy a lot of stuff I, uh, as a matter of fact, got a got an email from our friend in Turkey, uh, Grayson, who uh, was kind of um, teasing me a bit about the, uh, the the real small amount of of junk that I I brought home from Manassas. But I'm trying to cut back, Grayson. I'm trying to control it. I told Grayson that uh, if we don't control ourselves at the Hamfest, we uh, run the risk of appearing in the new. Discovery Channel television program called Ham Radio Hoarders. <laughs> they have this show where they go in and they find these uh, kind of uh, crazy people who have just completely stuffed their house with uh, stuff and cats and cat food and all kinds of crazy stuff. It's really kind of scary. And every once in a while I've got the uh, kind of a little bit of a shiver thinking that I might be moving into that category with ham radio equipment and parts and things like that. So uh, anyway, I'm not quite in a 12-step program in this area, but uh, there's a threat there, uh, Grace. And so uh, I managed to control my purchases at the Manassas Ham Fest. I put a picture of what I bought up on the uh, up on the blog. Not really very impressive, but uh, anyway, it, it's, kept the, uh, it's kept me off the Discovery Channel for now. A lot of, uh, before we get to the four day in May recordings, which is the main element of, of this episode of the podcast, I just wanted to update you guys. I, I have been melting an impressive amount of solder here in, uh, in Northern Virginia. And, uh, I know sometimes people complain that I'm, I'm, I spend not enough time talking about actual projects. So, so here we go. Um, um, Let's see. I've been. I w- was working on the um, my 30 meter double side band digital mode transceiver. I've been working on this thing for years, as as can be said for almost everything in the shack. But uh, I was inspired recently by a video from Peter Parker VK3YE. It seems like every time I say Peter Parker VK3YE, I use the phrase "I was inspired." <laughs> He's just that kind of radio amateur. Uh, I looked at one of um, Peter's videos. It was about minimalist SDR, software-defined radio. And um, he showed how he used a very, very simple receiver. His his receiver was, I mean, a lot simpler than mine. Um, his receiver was just one diode and a little Colpitz oscillator. I think his was running on, on 40 meters. And uh, he fed the the RF coming in from the antenna to to the diode. He also fed in the um, the the RF from the culprit's oscillator into the diode. The diode mixed the the two together and produced audio. And the audio went into the the sound card on his computer. And he was using a um, a program by a, a real homebrew hero, uh, Alberto I2 PhD. What a great call. Um, Alberto has a new um, set of software, a new piece of software called SD Radio. Uh, it's available for a free download, and uh, I recommend it. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. Anyway, uh, Peter 
Peters show how, showed how with this extremely simple minimalist uh, receiver combined with a sound card and Alberto's i2PHD SD radio software, you can get some really impressive results. So anyway, uh, Peter's video reminded me of my um, long-running 30-meter minimalist um, digital mode direct conversion double sideband uh, transceiver, and I started working at it again. I um, wanted one of the things I did with it when I was working on this uh, this particular rig this time around. I um, when I was doing this set of mods. I I wanted to to use LT Spice, our beloved LT Spice program, as part of my uh, my kind of design first, build later effort. You know, this has been a struggle of mine for a long time. I'm trying to overcome my build first, design later tendencies. But uh, LT Spice was a lot of fun, and what I did was I built in LT Spice the uh, the balanced modulator. My my favorite balanced modulator design is the one championed for many years by Doug DeMaw. It's a simple uh, singly balanced uh, modulator. It uses two diodes and a trifiller uh, toroid. And I really like this uh, this particular circuit because I understand how it works, which is always uh, a plus. Um, I, and I described in some detail the uh, how this particular balanced modulator does its thing in uh, in the book uh, Solder Smoke Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics. Sometimes I forget how it works and I have to pull out my own book and refresh my memory. <laughs> I think that's a good thing and a bad thing. But uh, anyway, I, I found my, I'm happy to say I found my own book quite useful in this area. But uh, um, I built the, uh, the balanced modulator in LT Spice. And it was interesting. It was fun because I, I, I wanted, it, it provided an opportunity to very easily sort of see what the output of the balance modulator looks like with various levels of RF and AF input. Uh, it was also kind of instructive for me because sometimes I'm not quite satisfied with what the waveform coming out of my balance modulator looks like. And and I wonder why why it looks kind of kind of messed up and and playing around with LT Spice I, I just realized why it looked kind of messed up kind of unsymmetrical or asymmetrical it should be symmetrical it should look like that that nice kind of uh, hourglass on the side pattern it should look like um, a two-tone test pattern from an SSB rig and you get the similar kind of pattern even with one tone with one tone from um, a balanced modulator and a DSB ring. But mine never quite looked that way. They looked kind of lopsided and wavy. And what I realized what it, what it was is that uh, at the output, there's still there's some audio getting through because while the while this circuit is is balanced for um, for for RF, uh, it's not balanced for the audio. So you do get a little bit of audio through, but it's easy that's easy to knock down. And you can knock it down with a filter after the balance modulator. Um, in this circuit, also, I, I included a bit of, of wisdom from uh, our friend in India, from Farhan, who advised always to put a, um, I think, a 3 dB pad after the balance modulator because it's important to provide a good termination at all frequencies, and you can get all kinds of horrible spurs and parasitics if there's not a termination or some of the many frequencies that will be coming out of this modulator circuit. So I put a little 3dB pad in there and then um, again inspired by Peter Parker I replaced the um, RF amplifier in the um, in this rig and I used almost I think a direct copy of the uh, the amplifier that Peter Parker has for his now world-famous Beach 40 uh, transmitter and uh, it worked really quite well. It's one of the, the more stable amplifiers that I've had. On the receive side, it's just a 40673 dual gate MOSFET. And then that goes to uh, a bit of audio amplification provided by the circuit from um, Roger Hayward's uh, Ugly Weekender Receiver Project. And I put the whole thing in a box and hooked it up to the, um, to the sound card. 
and I've been having a lot of fun with it. I've actually, I think I mentioned last time, I've made some PSK31 contacts. Uh, I've made some JT65 contacts, and lately I've uh, tuned it back to the um, to the whisper frequency. If you put the oscillator on one on 10138.7, and then send it into the sound card, and run the whisper program, you can uh, you can you can whisper. So it's been it's been receiving and transmitting and working stations, sort of working stations, all over the United States and, and into Europe. I haven't crossed the Pacific yet, but um, I'm sure that's coming. One thing that I did with Whisper, and I want to mention this here, because I'd never done it before, was uh, I had the Drake 2B on tuned sort of close to 30 meters, and it started picking up the um, the signal from the Whisper transmitter. I had never listened to this before. I've been transmitting Whisper a lot, but I never actually listened to what it sounds like, and it it actually sounds quite nice. Quite all those little tones going out. If you've if you've played with Whisper but never actually listen to what the uh, the transmitted audio sounds like I, I recommend it it's uh, quite nice and uh, kind of kind of kind of kind of has a kind of mystical uh, quality to it so um, anyway those are our, have been some of our adventures with the uh, the digital modes lately thanks to Peter Parker thanks to Farhan thanks to Roger Hayward thanks to Alberto I2 PhD um, and all the others who've provided inspiration on this project. Um, another thing I've been working on here is um, my arduous Arduino adventures. Um, you know, I, I talked a while back about how I've been fooling around with the Arduino microcontroller board, and uh, I have often asked myself, why do I torture myself this way? I am not really a computer guy. I'm not really a software person, but as I reach over to grab the uh, the device that I built, I know it's time to, it's it's, it's good to, to, to get out of your comfort zone, try something different. So, and and I have come up with, with a really, for me, a very useful device I'll describe. I talked about it last time. It's just a, uh, basically a VFO or a signal generator. I've, I've boxed it up. And I've got a nice little uh, output uh, jack on it. And um, so now I can generate at 10 hertz increments uh, RF from about 1 megahertz all the way up to about um, 30 megahertz. And um, I, I needed to boost the output a little bit from this thing because the um, I think the output was it, it was it was coming right out of the DDS card. It was quite low, and I wanted to be able to generate, you know, about one milliwatt. And uh, I, the the inspiration uh, on this project came from Steve Smith out there on the West Coast, Steve Snortrajan Smith. He, at one point, when we were talking about a project, suggested that I use a uh, Mar One little amplifier block. And so, in one of my orders to, I think, the DigiKey or somebody, I I just said, okay, send me several little of uh, these uh, Mar One amplifiers. They're surface surface mount devices. They are, I mean, it's really tiny, and I I struggled with it. I destroyed a, a couple of them <laughs> in the process of kind of soldering it onto the board, but it it provides a very nice little um, amplifier block, and uh, I put it on there. I put it on a little board next to the uh, the DDS card. And sure enough, I had soon soon had a respectable little one watt, one milliwatt signal coming out of my my signal generator. I, I then I wanted to use it, and um, I've had a problem for a long time with uh, my uh, 17 meter SSB receiver for my 17 meter homebrew single sideband station. Um, I've been using a a version of the Doug DeMore bare bones super hat <coughs> and um, this one was built by um, by Dale Parfit I've told the story many times I, I built my own bare bones super hat and then uh, I bought one on the internet from somebody who wanted to get rid of theirs and then I started playing with it and anyway it turned out it was built by by Dale and uh, I I've been using it I uh, I modified it. I think Dale was originally built, I think, for uh, 
for 20 meters and I modified it for uh, for 17 meters and it was originally built Doug DeMoor's design was of course for for uh, for CW but I wanted to use it for phone so I modified the filter for um, to widen it it uses a um, um, a ladder filter Dale's uh, version used three five megahertz crystals and I read in the literature that uh, if you change the value of the uh, the capacitors to ground there's a uh, three I think three or five sets of capacitors from the uh, the line of crystals to ground in the ladder filter uh, if you lower the value of these capacitors you can broaden the uh, the frequency response of the uh, of the rig there's a good article that describes all this and I'm reaching for it right now so I can comment accurately another source of inspiration of course one of my favorite books QRP classics by the ARRL mine is really getting kind of worn out but the words of wisdom on this come in an article by W7ZOI Wes Hayward from the July 1987 issue of QST page 24 designing and building building simple crystal filters a simple and inexpensive crystal filter that performs well makes receiver and transmitter projects much more fun build one yourself at a fraction of the cost of a commercial unit indeed anyway Wes has got a great article in there and um, it provides a table showing that a cone 3 crystal filter uh, if you change the um, the capacitor values down to around 17 picofarads and of course play with the um, the the end resistance you can widen the bandwidth bandwidth out considerably to uh, to phone levels out to 2.5 kilohertz anyway that's what I did I um, I broadened a bit the uh, the response on the filter and uh, I wasn't quite happy with it it didn't it didn't really sound too good it, it had kind of a, a muffled sound actually what I did the first time around I um, I didn't I didn't lower the capacitor values enough. I think I lowered it to about, um, I had 30 picofarad caps in there. And uh, <laughs> with my new uh, signal generator that can, can move at 10 hertz or 50 hertz increments, I was able to go in to the receiver and uh, <clears throat> using my Tech 465 scope as the output measuring device, graph the response graph the frequency response of the filter and sure enough I found that it it was a bit narrow for comfortable SSB it was I think about 1.8 kilohertz wide depending on where you start on the skirt but but really kind of narrow and that that I think partially accounted for the less than satisfying uh, uh, kind of comfort level when listening to SSB it did that that, that accounts for part of the the reason it was muffled but the other thing I noticed was that I had um, kind of badly placed the BFO frequency and you know on one of these filters you want to have the BFO frequency placed properly in relation to the response curve of the filter and it should be kind of off to the end <laughs> it, again I got a lot of this described better in the in the book but my problem in essence was that I had kind of placed the BFO kind of not off the end of the response uh, curve of the filter but kind of in the midst of it so I was uh, getting a little bit of the the opposite sideband coming through and it was exacerbating the the kind of narrow filter response that I um, had uh, described a little bit earlier so Anyway, the, the bottom line is that with the uh, the new uh, Arduino DDS AD9850 uh, signal generator, I was able to remedy both these problems, and uh, I, I changed the value of the caps to 17 picofarads, which widened the response uh, considerably, and then I also um, properly placed the BFO, so uh, the uh, the frequency response of the uh, the receiver is a lot nicer it sounds sounds good now um, I thought that this project was going to take me a long time so I have uh, 
temporarily replace the uh, the 17 meter SSB rig with uh, the Drake 2B, but I could see now that uh, I can go back to a fully homebrew station on 17 meters. So the Drake 2B is going to go back to its traditional position up on uh, top of the Helicrafters HT37, and I will be able to proudly boast on 17 meters that I'm using a a homebrew station. Um, let's see. One of the first stations I, I worked, by the way, with the 2B on 17 SSB was a station in Panama. Um, and uh, it turned out to be an Italian in Panama. And we had a nice, nice conversation there. Um, let's see. All right, I think it's time to play a little bit of the, uh, of the recordings from the four days in May by Bob Crane, W8SX. Our correspondent in Dayton. We're, uh, we're really grateful that Bob made these recordings. He's been, he had some, I think, mobility problems when he was out there, but he's, he soldiered on for solder smoke. And, uh, our first recording is, uh, is uh, his interview with, uh, George Dobbs, G3RJV. George Dobbs, G3RJV. Just a few words about four days in May for this year. It got off to its normal super start with, uh, with the speakers. Uh, I was speaking really on two things. A little bit about my history and uh, a little bit about the early equipment I used. Uh, by the way, these are not the QRPers walking by. And, uh, and then I spoke of the kind of circuitry that over the years I found that people enjoy and want to see more of. And almost all of them talk about nice little things they can build in one night or or in a weekend and so for a lot of years I've been trying to get that kind of circuit into Sprat and indeed do that kind of circuit for myself and uh, we've got quite a following in Sprat the practical wireless also have very, very well almost similar circuits so uh, there's been always this constant idea that if you can produce some circuits that can be built by the average person who can hold a soldering iron and can solder a decent joint, and that at the end of the night or the weekend they can point at something and say, I built that and it works. And that's always a good note to end any day. Okay, one more question, George. Why do you say soldering and why do we say soldering? I don't know. I blame Mira, actually. I think it's his fault. Uh, I hadn't known about that before I uh, first listened to Sodder Smoke. Uh, and, I mean, I've no idea, and I hope that someone can write into Bill and explain why the L has been dropped out of soldering. Or we could line up all the radio hams in the US and say, one, two, three, soldering. <laughs> And uh, I believe you have a, a new CD or DVD out that, that explores the regens. Is that true? Well, it's an old one. And in fact, I'm going to have to make some more because I've been chased for, for them. I did uh, a lot of work on regens uh, oh, a couple of years ago and uh, did a presentation uh, at Four Days in May and, uh, and had a CD which had the circuitry on it. And... Uh, I was left with about eight of them, I think, uh, I still had. And I mentioned them in my talk this year, and uh, I could have sold 80, about eight. So I, I'm either going to have to redo the whole thing or make some more of the CDs using the old, uh, the old text and the circuits. Is it true, as Bill Murra suggests, that the um, regenerative receiver is um, inhabited by demons. Well, no. I mean, it's an analog device. You know, you, you can't press buttons to go through several layers of software in order to solve things or do do things. It's hands-on. And the delightful thing about a regen is that almost every time you put your hands on it, it changes other things. So, or the parameters are change, changing the whole time. And it's part of the pleasure of being able to apply manual skills in order to drive it. Uh, Regens are great fun, and don't listen to what Bill says. Uh, is it true that uh, perhaps the uh, Drake 2B has a regen attachment for it? 
Well, it's sort of. Wait a minute, I'm holding the wrong thing. Yes, it, yeah, it sort of has. You're thinking the cube multiplier. Uh, the best regens I've ever built have been on the cube multiplier idea. And uh, at the moment, we're looking at putting one out in kit form. Uh, we haven't really got awfully far along that yet. But, but, but I think we'll get there. I think we, we, there seems to be a demand for some reason for regens at the present time. And, and people who are buying the CD, and I've got one left now, uh, were saying strange things like, has it got any tube circuits in it? So, you know, there's a sort of uh, an idea that we should perhaps just slip back a little bit in history and enjoy radio as it should be enjoyed. Thank you, George. Entertaining again, as usual. Okay, many thanks. Thank you. All right, great to hear from George. <laughs> Thanks for that interview, Bob. Very interesting. Yes, yeah, soldering versus soldering. Mm, yes, another. We seem to get into a lot of pronunciation issues here on Solder Smoke. I think this is one where we're going to just have to uh, agree to be, uh, you know, one people divided by a common language. <laughs> um, hey, and you know, Bob raises an interesting, and, and George, they discuss an interesting and for me disturbing. Uh, fact, and it's a, it is a disturbing fact, and that is that the Drake 2B does have what could be considered a regenerative element in it. Th this leaves me, you know, really profoundly torn and conflicted, <laughs> because as much as I love the Drake 2B, it sits there, and I'm looking at it right now, it sits there staring at me with a Q multiplier, and uh, it, this this whole thing, and, and George's is CD, and uh, May cause me to re reconsider my entire theory about the uh, the demonic uh, possession of um, of uh, of regenerative uh, receiver circuits. Um, and you know, if we've got a ruling on this from uh, from George Dobbs, I think we have to take it quite seriously. If he gives the thumbs up to regens, well, I'm gonna gonna reconsider my my opposition. <laughs> Great to hear from you, George. Glad you had a good time at Dayton. And thanks for that interview, Bob. Uh, well, hi there. My name's Colin, Colin Turner, and uh, my call sign's G3VTT. I gave a presentation today about the current offshore radio activities off the Dutch coast with Radio Seagull. And uh, I was talking about it from the high power angle with the transmitters and also the QRP angle, where I uh, was talking about the uh, antenna used and uh, the equipment that I used, the Ellicraft K1 and the tuner, the uh, G3WQW antenna tuner. Tell us what the advantages of operating at sea. Well, the advantages of operating at sea um, are that you're on a block of steel that's floating on salt water, ground con conductivity is good, so you get a few dBs increase in signal, and I was explaining how uh, with operating QRP, I sent it like a 100-watt station back in the UK. I was using the 80-meter band around 3560 to work about six or seven countries whilst I was operating at sea. It's been a long day today, <laughs> and uh, I'm quite tired, but I'm very pleased to uh, tell you about these activities. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, and every success to you. Thank you. And everybody listening to Solar Smoke. And for your information, I used to play solder smoke in my classroom. Oh, you did? I did. And what did you teach? Well, I taught uh, a large number of uh, young people uh, in a special needs school. I had a class and I taught them uh, craft, soldering, uh, a bit of geography, a bit of uh, English. But generally speaking, I tried to teach them some practical skills. And uh, I played solder smoke, used at the end of the day, to cheer me up. Oh, <laughs> cheers <laughs> I'm all serious. Up, yes. Oh, yes. It's a great, uh, a great program. Can I call it that? And wonderful. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Thanks, Colin. That's really, really very nice to hear. <laughs> I know what you mean about the uh, the saltwater ground plane. I spent three years out in the Azores, surrounded by a really excellent <laughs> saltwater ground plane, and uh, I wasn't on a chunk of steel. I was on a chunk of volcanic rock. But I know about the advantage, and uh, yeah, I'm really delighted to hear that you played uh, the podcast in the classroom. Thanks, and thanks, Bob. Oh, speak on the hill. Yeah. <laughs> I am pleased to be with you one time more, and uh, here in Dayton. 
in Italian now. Oh, speak in Italian. Oh, in Italian? Oh, yeah, yes. Sorry, because my, la mia lingua inglese è molto povera e allora faccio fatica a capire. Sono piacevolmente sorpreso di incontrarti ancora una volta qui in Dayton e ci incontreremo ancora tante altre volte. All right, that was Piero Begali, I2RTF. <laughs> Always good to hear from you, Piero. Ciao, Piero, grazie mille. I really like the um, Pietro Begali um, company website, really nice. There's an amazing picture there of Piero as a little boy sitting at a lathe working on something. And it was obvious that, uh, that Piero has the knack or had the knack from a very early age. So good to hear from you again, Piero, and thanks for the nice message. Hi, I'm Joe K0NEB from Lincoln, Nebraska. And what I talked about was kit building techniques. Uh, mostly went over things like uh, how to sort out your parts and identify your parts and how to handle them and different ways to store them away in between building sessions because as you know a lot of these kits take longer to build than uh, you can accomplish in one session. So what I did was I, I covered how to store them effectively and how to sort your parts so that if it's a kit that's built stage by stage each different stage is in its own compartment of the container and then once you're done with that stage you're ready to test that stage and that little cup in that container is all empty. So little tips and hints like that. That sounds great. That also applies to a homebrew that is not a kit. I exactly, exactly. In fact, I wrote uh, uh, the new chapter, the construction techniques chapter in the 2014 ARO handbook. Uh, I, I use the term project as opposed to kit because I, I know that that pertains to both homebrew projects as well as kits. So that uh, if you had to collect all the parts yourself or if you bought it all pre-assembled as a kit, um, you still follow the same methods. Oh, wonderful. I know that uh, my uh, incorrect reading of some devices and not counting properly has caused me problems in the past, so what you suggest is doing is really wonderful. Exactly. And, and what we try to do is the more chances that people have of succeeding in kit building, uh, the more kits they're going to buy and the more kits they're going to make and it just makes it all better for all of us because the guy that fails on one kit isn't likely to buy another. Yes. So we want to make sure their first kit building experience is the best. I also gave tips on how to solder and how to make uh, the solder connection look good. I always tell people if it looks like a Hershey's Kiss you got it right. Wetting. It's got a wet. Yes. Yep. Okay. Thank you. You bet. Okay. <laughs> All right. I like it, Joe. Yeah, very good. And it uh, sounds very interesting. I like the bit about the the Hershey's Kiss. <laughs> if it looks like a Hershey's Kiss, I guess viewed from the top, uh, you've got it right. Okay, very good. Thanks. Okay, this this is Rick Campbell, uh, KK7B, and this morning I gave a talk on, uh, on Hard Rock, uh, a modular approach to experimental radio. And the gist of the talk is uh, that by breaking up the, uh, uh, the radio into, into modular pieces that can be indep independently tested and used and have analog signals in and out, um, you avoid some of the difficulties of, uh, of the soft rock approach where everything kind of has to work in order for, you know, you've got all these pieces and you put them together and everything has to work or nothing works. Um, but even more significant is the, f the fact that by taking a modular approach it allows you to go much, much deeper into the understanding of what's going on. So it's not a it's not a cookbook approach at all or, okay, I'm going to show you how to do this, just do what I do. Um, it, uh, it allows you to go deeply into the understanding and uh, um, as, as one, of, uh, one of the people I was describing it to said, uh, well that's hard, that's harder than anything I want to do. And I said, yeah, I called it hard rock, it's not easy. <laughs> this is, this is uh, you know, all of my friends are retired rocket scientists and they go deep into the electronics and physics of the devices and, and uh, I see an awful lot of uh, of people in various communities that uh, um, they're willing to duplicate circuits that they've seen in the magazines but they're not willing to think about them 
and they certainly aren't willing to modify them and, and uh, uh, do experiments. And so that's the, that's the approach I'm pushing, is uh, uh, don't, uh, don't limit yourself to just duplicating things that other people have done or tinkering away at the bench. Uh, really dig in and think about what you're doing and use a modulate, modular approach uh, to, uh, that allows you to optimize, work, use the scientific method so you're working on one variable at a time. And, and that's, that's pretty much what I talked about. And this is kind of a Lego approach to... Uh... Uh, it, it could be called a Lego approach where you, f you focus on working on one Lego at a time and you get it all optimized and then you seal it up in a die cast box and from then on it just works and then you can go on to the next piece. Okay. Have you uh, had much interest in this? From the number of people standing by waiting to talk to you, I guess, yes. I've, I've had uh, quite a few people that, uh, that have wanted to talk to me about it. Um, another part of my talk is that uh, I'm using this approach with uh, university students and they've really taken off with it. Uh, many of them get their amateur radio licenses and, uh, and want to play with it. Uh, one approach that I take with my classes is that the last lab of the quarter is open-ended and uh, I want you to work on something that you'll be interested enough that you'll continue working on it after you've gotten the grade. And, uh, and the students are just, they're just eating that up. They really enjoy having a, uh, an experience where, where they can start working on a problem during the class and keep working on it afterward. Wonderful. Can you describe the IEEE vending machine? Uh, yes, uh, uh, we have a, a vending machine that looks just like any other vending machine that might have candy bars or something in it um, in the, uh, uh, on the ground floor of the Electrical Engineering Building at Portland State. And I'd walked past it visiting the department uh, a few years ago um, many times before I, I stopped and looked at it. And it's full of electronic components, little, uh, little packets of five resistors and uh, um, uh, two N3904 transistors and little toroids and things uh, in, in just little plastic packs and put in a quarter and get five resistors out. So I, I thought that was a great innovation. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic innovation. Yeah, and it's it's also a uh, uh, an indication that uh, the, the IEEE is, of course, a professional organization and they're starting to take a real interest in this uh, um, getting away from the theory and more into the uh, reducing the theory to practice and pushing things to the next level in hardware. So I, th I thought that was a real good thing to see. That's wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you. Oh, man, there you go. Words to live by from Rick, Rick Campbell. Yeah, modular approach, hard rock. Yeah, I, I know exactly what he means. You know, you get one of these circuits where everything has to work and it's all on one board <laughs> with SMT components and holy cow, it's a formula for uh, electronic heartbreak. <laughs> and understanding the physics, understanding closer, get, getting closer to the science and electronics. Woohoo! Three cheers for Rick Campbell. Thanks, Rick, and, uh, and uh, thanks, Bob, for a wonderful interview. Good evening, this is Dave Kripe, NM0S, at Four Days in May. And uh, this evening, uh, our group, the Four States QRP group, is introducing a new transceiver that, uh, that I've designed here over the past couple of years. Uh, name of the transceiver is the Cyclone 40. This is a 40 meter CW transceiver, putting out four watts and covering the entire CW subband using a PTO tuned VFO. This uses a brass screw inside uh, the tuning coil of the VFO to give uh, approximately 125 kilohertz of spread in that, uh, in that oscillator. This is a very unique design that uh, gives us high performance with a very small parts count, only 96 electrical components, none of which are surface mount, only three toroids. Uh, the architecture is very unusual in that it uses the power amplifier MOSFETs double duty as the receive mixer. So we use essentially a power device in the mode of a mixer. Consequently, we have a very large dynamic range and very good intermodulation performance that surpasses most other QRP kits available. 
Um, other niceties in this design include a side tone, uh, a three, uh, four digit frequency counter, uh, a good fast acting AGC, and uh, uh, a nice enclosure that is made up of PC board material that's uh, actually part of the circuit board that assembles with uh, a few bits of solder. Um, tonight, the special at FDIM, it's $85, and uh, sales will commence on the Four States website next week after we return home. Thank you. You're so welcome. Are there anything else you'd like to comment on the design? Um, Anything else that's unusual about the design? Well, uh, unusual things about the design, there are no LM386s, no NE602s. Uh, if you have a chance to look at the schematic on the website, you'll notice that uh, essentially no circuit in this design has been borrowed from any other kit. Uh, I made a, a very deliberate effort to be as unique as possible, and I think the performance uh, uh, is a good representation of, uh, of that. It sounds like a really neat design. Is there any attempt to make it multi-band? Uh, no, it's, it's really a, a fixed band design. Uh, we do look forward to, in the future, introducing uh, this design on other frequencies, but for now, it's very happy at uh, 40 meters. Uh, what kind of current draw does it take? Uh, on transmit, it uses a very efficient Class E power amplifier. Uh, it, it draws less than half an amp from 12 volts. Uh, the power amplifier devices themselves run just barely warm. You can run them key down all day without uh, any concern. They're not even heat sunk. On receive, uh, it draws 25 milliamps nominal, and it will run from a 9-volt battery. Sounds like it'll run a long time from a 9-volt battery. That it will. Uh, it was really designed with uh, both good receive performance and good power requirements as well. That sounds like a power miser, a thing you want to put in a backpack. Uh, it's, it's a compact size. It's about three and a half by four and a half inches and two inches high with room inside for a battery pack if you wanted to add one. And uh, frequency readout is done. How? Frequency readout is done using a PIC microcontroller that counts the VFO frequency, transmits four digits of CW uh, through the headphones. Uh, sounds like a compact design, perfect for taking to the field. Very much so. Easy to build also, probably less than 12 hours. Wow. So, for those who have bought them tonight, uh, I look forward to hearing them on the air, and those who do so in the future, likewise. Thank you. You're welcome. Wow, and the crowd out in Dayton obviously really was very impressed with that rig. I mean, the, the reaction to the 40-meter band selection and the permeability-tuned oscillator you rarely hear a crowd respond with such enthusiasm. <laughs> Way to go, Dave. Way to go, four states. <laughs> I think you've got, uh, you know, you guys are approaching rock star status here. This is going to be crazy. You're going to get, you're going to be having groupies. You're going to have to hire, hire security. You're going to be riding around in limos with bling. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Sounds like a really interesting rig. I, uh, you know, the, the permeability-tuned oscillator. I mean, just all the images of the old Collins circuits. I think there's even a, a PTO in my Heathkit HW101, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, having just finished my struggle with uh, digitally-derived RF, it's just a very uh, refreshing in a kind of nostalgic kind of way to hear somebody talking about a rig where the... Uh, where the RF is generated the old-fashioned way, the analog way. I know, I know, I know, I'm, this guy's out there saying, there goes Bill, the Luddite tendencies are coming back. But, you know, I guess I really am a uh, hardware-defined radio analog circuit, non-surface mount kind of guy. But uh, that sounds like a really <coughs> amazing rig. And we wish you the, the best of luck with it. Uh, thanks for the, the interview. Uh, there, Bob. Okay, I'm Roy Llewellyn, W7EL. 
gave a talk last night on yesterday morning rather on balance and a lot of people seem to be interested in the article that uh, I used as the text for that talk it's called balance what they do and how they do it and it was first published in the ARL compendium volume one which was about 1985 that's still in print I believe or available you can get the uh, uh, antenna compendium or you can find the article on my website easyneck.com um, there's a link that links you to articles of interest amateurs and follow that link to find the article it's the same text as in the antenna compendium wonderful and uh, what do you do for uh, ham radio other than write articles I develop and sell easyneck antenna modeling software is it used by a lot of people <laughs> Thousands. Thousands, okay. When I ta read articles, that's almost always the um, go-to software for anything having to do with antennas. People refer to it all the time. I have been selling it, or its predecessor, Elnec, since 1990, which is kind of scary, actually. Wow. And it's been my chief source of income since uh, 1995, when I escaped the Dilbert cartoon. <laughs> Many people want to escape that cartoon, but uh, can't quite do it yet. So develop software that's useful, right? <laughs> yeah, whatever. I just kind of lucked out that I had a way to make a living that didn't involve going into the cube farm every morning. Wonderful. Well, do you have any other comments you want to direct to people? That's all. I want to thank all my EasyNet customers for keeping me out of, out of the cube farm, and I hope that... Uh, uh, people learned a bit about balance in my talk yesterday. How many customers might you have total? Just guess. Thousands. thousands. I, I know, but I won't say exactly. Okay. Not, not quite millions, but my, thousands. Those are primarily amateur customers, but I have a very wide range of professional customers also. I sell to aerospace industries, government, military, universities, uh, space agencies, international broadcasters, and so forth. So it's also being used more and more in the professional world. It's amazing when I look across the internet how much of commercial world interacts with the uh, amateur world for direction, in fact. Indeed it does. Uh, in fact, I've never advertised in the professional market at all. It's all been carryover from the amateur. People who are amateurs uh, find out about the program through amateur radio and then they adapt it to their professional uses. Nothing like word of mouth, huh? Nothing at all. And the word of mouth can go either way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it can. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Wow, how cool it is to have Roy Llewellyn, W7EL, here on the Solder Smoke podcast. I am really, really pleased. Thanks for that interview, Bob. You know, Roy, he's, uh, he's humble there. And uh, <laughs> his contributions to the radio art, and especially the amateur radio art, have been really profound. I, I, I have in, in my hand the same you know, QRP Classics book that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. And in front of me is a picture that you've all seen. It's the, the optimized QRP transceiver for 7 megahertz. Um, and it's got the picture. You know the picture I'm talking about. It's a little, um, a little box. And next to it is uh, an American quarter, a 25 cent piece. And just to give you a sense of the scale. And then the, the article opens, here's a rig that provides real challenge for the QRP home brewer. Nevertheless, this is a classic circuit and a favorite in the QRP community. Even though this project, designed and built by Roy Lowell and W7EL, was first published in August 1980 QST, it is still the best available portable QRP rig in many respects. This presentation has been condensed somewhat from the original and includes Roy's circuit updates through July 1990. Also very, very cool that, that uh, Roy uh, mentions our, uh, our fellow knack victim, Dilbert. <laughs> and, and, and it's really great to hear that uh, Easy Knack, that wonderful product of, uh, of Roy's uh, uh, hand, has allowed him to escape the Dilbert uh, cube <laughs> cubicle farm. <laughs> That's terrific. Uh, 
Yeah, thanks very much, Bob, and thanks, Roy. <laughs> My name is Jeremy McDermott, and, and I'm an NH6Z, and I just gave a talk on the uh, software side of the uh, OpenHPSDR project, which stands for Open High Performance Software Defined Radio. Which is, seems to be the wave of the future in amateur radio. Yeah, I think SDR is very much up and coming, um, and you're starting to see it implemented in a lot of different radios. Uh, most notably for me is the Elecraft K3 and KX3, which do most of their demodulation and final filtering in, using SDR techniques rather than analog hardware. And it's easy to do design this way, so I don't have to wait for the Mauser uh, package to show up? For sure. It, uh, it allows us to replace out a lot of the traditional software component, uh, hardware components with software components instead. So, for example, where you know in the analog realm we may implement a filter with a crystal filter or some uh, inductors and capacitors, we can do that in the digital realm with software-defined radio by using fast Fourier transformations and multiplications to uh, affect the same sort of thing. And we can do that a lot more agilely because we can change that filter up completely compile new code and implement it in uh, minutes rather than, uh, as you said, waiting for Mauser to send me the right values of caps and things like that. Um, so I'm much more agile in the design side of it, as well as having a filter that's a lot more flexible. A crystal filter you may plug into your IC746 and you get one bandwidth out of it. Whereas we can create software-defined filters that by changing the mathematical parameters I put in there, I can make pretty much any filter width I want. Okay. Uh, do you find uh, younger kids who have been raised in the computer age a little more uh, receptive to this? For sure, it, and it's part of what got me into homebrewing. I'm 40 years old, and I pretty much grew up with computers and computer software. I started programming when I was five. Um, and uh, while I've always been interested in computers and interested in electronics, uh, my design skills are not up to that of an electrical engineer. Uh, whereas my software design skills are fairly strong. So when the SDR uh, concepts started coming out, that allowed me to play with this stuff a whole lot more and become much more of a home brewer. Um, in addition, I've talked to multiple high school students at multiple conferences that I've given a talk to uh, at, and uh, they've been intently interested in the software, almost to the exclusion of the hardware uh, that I've good been talk. showing. Good talk. I thought they were all good. Sorry about Sorry. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. Hey, you see what I mean about uh, the crowds going wild and, and the possible need for <laughs> bouncer-type security <laughs> out there at uh, at four days in May? Yeah, they got they were interrupted there at the end by a very enthusiastic uh, uh, fan. <laughs> Fabulous. Hey, that's great. Uh, and yeah, software-defined radio, the wave of the future. You know, I. You know, I, I struggle with it here, and, you know, I sometimes find myself wanting to go into that uh, kind of uh, duck and cover position when the wave of the future is approaching. <laughs> but, uh, but look, I'm, I'm trying. I'm working on it here, guys. I, I, in, this, in this very podcast, we've discussed the use of LT Spice, Arduino, um, direct digital synthesis. You know, so, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's room for... Uh, there's room for the future here in the Cider Smoke podcast, and you know, I on the uh, on LT Spice and with the DDS. I remember a long time ago when we were talking about LT Spice. Uh, Mike uh, KL7R and I were talking about it, and I said, you know, one of these days we're gonna have we're gonna be able to design a program in LT Spice, and then have it interface with the real world and and use that little oscillator that we built in LT Spice, and have it you know, drive an amplifier. And, well, when you think about it, you know, the direct digital synthesized uh, oscillator that I have sitting here on the uh, on the workbench, in essence, in some ways, is is like that. So we are, uh, we are caught, at least partially, in the wave of the future. But I do admit that that uh, reference to the permeability tuned oscillator kind of, kind of resonated with me. <laughs> In an in an LC kind of way, if you know what I mean. See if this goes. Okay. You need to talk into there. I need to talk into there. Yeah. Go ahead. I've never held an iPod an iPod before. Whoa. I've never held one before. <laughs> a new experience for you. A new experience. Uh, my name is Rex Harper, and my call sign is W1REX. I stumbled into QRP about 15 years ago, and uh, I happened to come out to Dayton, and uh, 
It was my first trip anywhere, uh, ham radio oriented. I was on a business trip. I had to meet a chemist right at the right at the entrance of the ham fest really? at the ticket coup. And it was, so it was a business trip. And he was a PhD chemist. He said, I'm going to ham fest. He was a ham. I was a ham. So we met, wandered through the thing, talked chemistry all through the thing. Um, and um, I sort of heard about the QRP guys meeting, and but I never met up with anybody. But I saw QRP row, and uh, I sort of got enamored. I joined the uh, a couple of the clubs and got the the uh, quarterlies. And the next year, I came out with my very first product. And it, that was it was the um, the toys board, the little drop-in board that goes into the Altoids tin. And I. I was an engineer working uh, at R&D company, and uh, I had a whole bunch of them made on my own dime, and <laughs> I brought them out here totally clueless about what in the heck anybody would like, and uh, I sold quite a few of them at Four Days in May, my very first one. I think that was 1997. Um, and then the next year, I had so much fun, I came back, and I had the Zomboids tin, so I had the board and the tins to go with it. And of course, it's just gone viral after that. It, it's I don't know. It's affected rear my brain or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, what kind of products do you make now? Um, well, well the, the whole thing is that I used to be a toy designer, and I've been a product designer all my life. Ever since I was a kid, I designed stuff. And uh, so, being a toy designer, I was very creative in doing electronic toys and games. I did that for about seven years, and uh, I hold five patents on electronic games. But I got out of the business. It was just just too hard to disguise one microprocessor, four push buttons, and four LEDs. Uh, and I had bigger fish to fry. I was doing other things. So, uh, but the idea is, is very creative, and that's what I like about the QRP side and my little QRP ME business is. It's my creative outlet. Some people are artists, some people are sculptors. I'm sort of an electronic sculptor. Um, and uh, I just like to think about problems or interesting variations on the theme. And that's what I do as relaxation. I sit down and design a board. So when NorCal came out with the Back to the Future series way back, I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was late 90s, I think. Um, you know, he came out with uh, in in the um, the uh, the the magazine. You know, the I can't remember the name of it now. Uh, QQ. No, that's ARCI. But the Northern California QRP Club had their quarterly that everybody used to get. I can't remember the name of it now. But um, so he had this Back to the Future thing, and they came out with the Tuna Tin. There was the Hearing Aid Five, and there was the CB Slider. Well, when that whole thing came out, I was from Maine, and when I was a kid, sardine cans used to wash up on the beach in front of my house. They were sealed, but they were empty. And what they did is, you know, because most of the sardine factories are on a pier, and when they canned them, when they, they sort of got set aside when there weren't any sardines in them, and a lot of times they would wash over the pier or something, and they would wash it into the shore in my house. And, and I used to pick them up and I'd open them up and I made little drawers for my electronic components and stuff with these sardine cans. So I immediately thought of the sardine sender. And so I scoured um, the Maine trying to find uh, an existing, there was only one existing sardine canning company in Maine. So, but I scoured the place trying to find a contact that would get me into that factory so that I could can stuff inside the sardine can. And it took me years. <laughs> and by the time I finally did that, um, the company was sold, and the company that bought uh, Stinson Canning took all the equipment to Canada. So there was no more sardine canners in the state of Maine. But in that process, I ran across a guy who had a museum, and he said, oh, by the way, I will sell you a round canning machine. And that was right after um, I started kidding the Tuna Tin 2, after the... the um, Oh, after the <laughs> the uh, um, Jay Bromley and, and the Archie uh, group quit doing it, he got tired of it. And I happened to be standing there when he gave it back to Doug. And I said, well, I'll do it for LobsterCon to help proceed, you know, collect the money and use it to help fund LobsterCon. So he gave it to me. And 
I was kidding it, and then I got this round canning machine, and I thought, oh, I'll put all those parts inside. And so that was a, you know, a pretty big thing, and everybody really liked it, and I made the funky labels for it. And again, that's all my creative outlet working there and having fun. But I decided right then that I really wanted more things to go around. I wanted the accessories. So I went with the receiver, and then it was the amplifier, and then it was the... Um, the TR switch between them, and then it was the antenna tuner, and then it was the the audio amplifier, and then it was the antenna, and then it was the battery charger, power supply, distribution center. So my goal was to take everything that a ham needs to set up a station from antenna to um, you know the the uh, audio output to have it in, in tuning cans, and I'm almost there. <laughs> I got two more things to go. I've got an antenna. And I've got the the actual key, so uh -huh. those are the last two pieces. So, but uh, you know, tuna cans are kind of fun. But I still like the Al the Altoids tins, and I still I've always been a bench engineer. You know, I'm an electrical engineer, computer programmer, um, and I've always enjoyed working on bench. And any time the company wanted to move me into management and shuffle paper, I always found another job because <laughs> I just like to build things. It doesn't make any difference what it is. So, uh, you know, I built our house, I built the Quonset hut, I built the barn, I built the log cabin, uh, pour concrete, you know, I do all that kind of stuff. Um, so, anything, big, small, I like to build. But I really like, when it comes to electronics, I like to build small things, and that's why I enjoy QRP. Short mm -hmm. projects uh, don't take up a lot of your time, but you get them done and you're playing with them more than you are building. So, uh, so I started doing the homebrew stuff because I just do a lot of scratch building. I don't scratch build like Manhattan, but I like to build projects. I see something somewhere, and I don't wait for a circuit board. I just build it. And uh, so I started doing this, the um, homebrew supplies. You know, the, the toys board was nice. I just re did a reversion of that. And uh, then I did the block toys, which is the Manhattan pads. And now I just did a plain board, which is one giant soldered pad on both sides. So when you plunk and glue your pads down, you now have a tinned solder uh, backplane. So when you go to you make your ground connections, they're right there and they just want to they want to solder fine. Um, and those are quite popular. I sell those all over the world. Wonderful. So yeah. You're having a business in your hobby and an outlet for your creativity. The, it's sort of a triple whammy. Uh, you know, I get a chance to, to be creative which I like to do, uh, and I like to tickle people's funny bones, and so that's why you see, you know, most of my stuff has got a little bit of a comic bent to it, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, that's that's you know, other people paint or collect stamps or anything. I just like to create stuff, so it really helps out. It keeps my sanity. Good for you. Primarily because I live in the sticks in Maine on a farm. <laughs> I take care of my wife's animals, and I don't see anybody. So there's no hams, and there's one ham in town. He's uh, 87 years old. We do meet every once in a while, but you know there's no one up there. So I just go out in the Quonset hut and I start. Okay, what's the next thing I can create? Great. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. My pleasure. That, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the best explanations that I've ever heard of the knack. Rex Harper has the knack. Wow, a creative outlet, a sculpture of electronics, <laughs> another uh, another knack victim, and I just think the way he described it, the way he described the uh, the uh, the kits that he's put together. You know, one of my big regrets from the last couple of years was not spending more time at the Vienna Wireless Ham Fest when Rex was at the table next to to mine, and not spending more time there talking to Rex. The thing is, he was selling those kits so fast that I felt bad. I didn't want to distract him. He was His business was booming, but I should have stuck around. I should have talked more to, to Rex because what an interesting guy and what a great uh, <clears throat> what a great example of the knack. But thanks for that. Thanks for that wonderful interview, Rex, and, and thanks, uh, thanks again, Bob. Thanks for all the interviews, Bob. Really an amazing collection of interviews this year. Thanks to everybody. And uh, I think, yeah, I think we'll have a very short solder smoke mailbag.
Ooh, that's awesome. Yeah, short solder smoke mailbag this time because we spent so much time on those wonderful interviews. Just a few things to say. Uh, you know, we uh, I put on the blog uh, an interview that I found on the Make blog with um, with Cliff Stoll. Cliff Stoll is the uh, the author of Silicon Snake Oil and Cuckoo's Egg, and there was a real good interview there with uh, with Cliff video interview done by the people who do um, the Maker blog. And the guy who did the interview with Cliff uh, wrote to me a few days after I put a link to the interview up on uh, on the Solder Smoke blog. You should really check out the blog. The interview, I think, would be of great interest. But one of, one of the things that I put was that uh, does how does Cliff Stoll pronounce the word kludge or kludge? And I needed we needed a ruling on this because you know the controversy continues. And the guy who did the interview wrote back and said that uh, that uh, that uh, Cliff uh, is prepared to go with either pronunciation. So that's real good. I've uh, been getting some email from our friend in India, Farhan, and uh, I'm happy to report that Farhan has recently been slash dotted, which makes he says that it it, it officially qualifies him as a as a geek. Um, well, I. I you know say I know that he qualifies as a a certified uh, homebrew hero and knack wizard uh, from long long time ago, but uh, Farhan has been slash dotted, and I get occasional Facebook messages from uh, Michael AA1TJ. Michael is uh, is continuing to push the envelope of homebrew minimalism, and uh, has it uh, down now. I think he's he's in the tens of milliwatts. With you know two or three transistors, doing great stuff, and uh, we'll have to put some more information about uh, about uh, Michael's most recent adventures up on the uh, up on the blog and into the next episode of the podcast. But that about wraps it up for one five three. I think this is one of our our best podcasts ever, and I think all the credit goes to uh, to Bob Crane and all of the wonderful people that he interviewed out there at uh, Four Days in May. Thanks very much, Bob, and thanks to all the interviewees. Seven threes to all of you. Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at CafePress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well... We have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!